one moment. Prayers for the wicked must not be forsaken. Do you really think she deserves it? Not for her. For me. The measure of an individual can be difficult to discern by actions alone. Take you, for instance. All this destruction, chaos. I was curious to see how far you'd go to find me. Well, here I am. Hi, and welcome to another episode of We Talk Funny. I'm your host, Ken Pringle. And today, you're kind of getting a bit of a two-in-one, as today's voice actor is not only somebody you've heard in a number of video games, such as the Skylanders series and Mass Effect, but he's also a popular voice director, having directed a number of episodes of Rugrats, as well as some of your other favorite cartoon shows. It's my buddy Keith Farley. So, to celebrate this episode, I am having a box of Hostess Donuts cereal, which will make a lot more sense, uh... Once you've heard Keith's horrifying childhood story of what he used to do for breakfast during Saturday mornings. And I gotta say, this cereal here, this is an interesting one because it's not bad. It's a pretty tasty cereal, but with milk it's just okay. However, it is one of the best snacking cereals I've ever had. Straight out of the box, this stuff is delicious. So if you're somebody who likes to snack on cereal late at night, perhaps while partaking of other certain late-night college interests... This is one that's got to be in your pantry. Whatever your favorite cereal is, I hope you grab a big old bowl of Saturday morning goodness there. Sit back, and as we always say here on the show, spoons up. Let's dig in. Welcome to We Talk Funny. I'm your host, Ken Pringle. And with me today, you have heard this gentleman in lots of different television shows and video games. You've heard him in games like Fallout 76 and Star Wars Squadrons. He's the voice of Eruptor from the Skylanders series, but he's probably best known as Thane from the Mass Effect series. It's my buddy Keith Farley. Thank you for coming on the show, Keith. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, so listen, uh, very first question I'm going to ask you before I get into anything else, because it is the first question I ask every single voice actor I have on this show. Were you a Saturday morning cartoons kid? Oh, God, yes. I haven't met a voice actor yet who said no, but I still feel like I have to do my duty and ask. (laughs) Well, the the thing is, I mean, I realized this recently is that there are no Saturday morning cartoons. No, no, not anymore. They no longer exist. And the great thing about when I was growing up, and maybe you are a little younger than me probably, is that it wasn't just the cartoons, but there were also great learning opportunities, like in the news on mm-hmm. CBS was this little condensed two-minute, three-minute news magazine geared with the news of the day, but brought down to a youth level. And of course, the Schoolhouse Rock on ABC. So that's where I learned the preamble to the Constitution. Which I still remember to this day. I can Absolutely. sing it, and I have to remember not to sing it when I say it. <laughs> it's like we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. It's like no, 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 no. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, and go on from there. So it was not only all those great shows. I mean, Super Friends, um, the Jackson Five, uh, Fat Albert, um, and Hong Kong Fooey. Uh, all those great Saturday morning cartoons, plus the Bugs Bunner Road Runner Hour, uh, all that stuff really—you um, looked forward to it. It oh, was yeah. that special morning when you could get up and the TV was just for you. Uh, that was kind of neat. Now it's twenty-four I'm, I'm, hours a day on three or four different networks. <laughs> So with those Saturday morning cartoons, uh, did you have one that was a particular favorite for you? I was a huge um, Looney Tunes fan. Big fan of the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Happy Hour. That was about as good as it, as it could get. Uh, so yeah, Bugs, Daffy. Roadrunner frustrated me when I was really little. I would have oh? to leave the room for Roadrunner because the the fact that it was never resolved <laughs> just got to me. I wanted the, I was rooting for the coyote for some reason. Um, <laughs> I wanted the coyote to get that road runner and, and you know, whatever, maybe they were going to be friends. I don't know. Or maybe Stu. I, I, 
for the sake of childhood you, I really hope that at some point you saw that one that one cartoon where Coyote actually caught the Roadrunner, but Roadrunner had been enlarged, so he was huge, so he just caught him by like the ankle. And just hanging on the ankle and the whole simple sign says, so what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to have a little bit of resolution in your, your eight-year-old heart there. Just perfect. <laughs> and I also really love the the music shows. I love the Jackson 5 show. I love the Osmonds show um, because I was also into the music. That was the other thing that was really part of growing up in the 70s was how amazing popular music was that you had. Stevie Wonder alongside The Doors, mm-hmm. alongside Diana Ross, alongside Cheech and Chong, and it was all on the top 40 radio station. And now ra- radio, like cartoons, has become sort of segmented, and you you get your sort of streamlined niche, but you don't get to yeah. hear a little bit of everything, which we got when we were kids. Well, and you had so much crossover between popular radio and animation in the 70s in particular, where some of those acts were becoming animated shows like, uh, uh, you know, the Jackson 5 was doing things and, uh, 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 you know, a lot of different, you know, the monkeys were doing things. And I mean, I think it probably all jumped the shark when they sent the Partridge family into outer space. But <laughs> yeah. right up until that moment, right up until Danny Bonaducci was like, it's time to go fight on Mars and sing or something. And I was like, all right. That's we, we we can back away from this now. I'll be over here. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think my childhood and, my childhood is over. <laughs> and in classic Saturday morning tradition, like so many kids, did you have a favorite breakfast cereal that went with all of this? You know what I used? I was thinking about this recently. I forget who I was talking to, but it was somebody else I was talking about. You know what I used to do on Saturday mornings? And this is this kind of shocks me as a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, and I'm a fairly open minded parent. You know, I let my kids have some autonomy. I wanted them to have a little bit of of uh, a sense of individuality and a sense of not, I'm not a helicopter parent by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I was always nearby, but I used to get up on Saturday mornings and I would make donuts. Wow. Like I with the oil and everything? Heat oil on the stovetop, like a pan of oil, maybe three or four inches of oil, get that really hot. And then you break out the Pillsbury uh, biscuits pop those open and you cut the middles out with a, with a bottle cap from like the olive oil you cut the donut holes out. And then I would drop the dough into hot oil and make donuts and roll them in either powdered sugar, or um, you could make a, a chocolate sauce with a little bit of Nestle's quick and just a tiny little bit of milk to get it kind of chocolatey and, but thick and viscous. And then I would dip those donuts and then I would take that in to the family room and watch cartoons and eat fresh donuts that is while my very, parents were sleeping soundly it's very room. industrious but i do feel like somewhere there was a 1970s you know social services agent who was not doing their job like how how one accident that's all it would have taken your parents would walk out there spilled oil you look like the elephant man and you'd be like i'm hungry that's <laughs> awful i'm not an animal i love donuts yeah. that would be my wow my yeah geez, I, yeah no you know First I thought it was a risk taker eating Captain Crunch and cutting the roof of my mouth, but that, jeez. <laughs> I think I like the Crunch Berries. If I had to go with the Captain Crunch, I was, I was a Crunch Berries fan. Oh, Crunch Berries is the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Captain Although, Crunch I mean, as long as you're not counting Peanut Butter Crunch, because Peanut Butter Crunch is a whole Peanut Butter other Crunch thing, was also but... off the charts. That's a whole other thing. Now, you've got quite the history uh, as a performer. I mean, you've you've done improv, you've done all sorts of different things. You're still a part of, of theater groups today. You've, you know, you've, you've really done a lot of different crafts uh, as an artist. Uh, what did you find yourself attracted to first? Was it theater? Was it VO? Was it comedy? What? Well, it's interesting. What I think that w- w- when I was a kid, um, the, the movie, the sting came out mm-hmm. and it was Robert Redford and uh, Paul Newman. Yeah. Great right? film. It's a great movie. It holds up to this day. And uh, I remember that reading that they got like some astronomical sum, probably like a million dollars each for being Mm -hmm. in this movie. And I went to see the movie when I was a kid and I thought you can make a million dollars doing that. That's (laughs) what I want to do. And no one, of course, as an eight year old, no one tells you like, well, the chances of you making a million dollars doing that are um, (laughs) slim, um, but go for it, kid. And I just never really looked back. So. I was always, I was the kid, all the talent shows, um, 
I, I, I took magic classes when I was a kid. So I was the kid up there doing the, the linking rings uh-huh. uh, and the cup and balls and all, all that great stuff. So I had a magic act. Um, I played the trombone. Uh, so I learned music, playing the trombone and the piano. Um, and I just was the kind of kid who just joined up. I was like, I- if there was a play, I wanted to be in it. If there was a choir, I wanted to sing in it. If there was a band, I wanted to play in it. And if there was a group to join, I just I just joined up. And, I'm surprised uh, that that was your first thought, though, because I mean, plenty of kids, you know, see acting like I want to be an actor. But most kids, they're drawn to either adventure or fame. And for you, it was just the pocketbook. Like that is not normal for a, for a young child. Most kids are like I'm going to be an astronaut, or you know, I'm going to be a movie star. You're like I'm going to pad my 401k. Uh, no, I thought. <laughs> How can I make as much money as possible doing as little work as possible? (laughs) And I, I, Uh, I, you know, that, that has carried through to this day. It's like, all right, uh, low risk, high reward. I'm all in. Others, other actors have to walk around like a set. They sometimes have to sit and stand. You're just in a room with headphones and all you do is talk. Easiest you could find. If if there was a job that just required me to snore, I'd probably throw this one by the side and go for that. Would it not be the greatest job in the world? <laughs> I do. I, I look at people and I, I look at like a, a guy like Huel Hauser, you know, from uh, mm-hmm. California Gold. You know, he's like this great guy on, I don't know if your audience will know who Huel Hauser is, but he's a PBS local to Los Angeles. And he was this dude who was ex-military, but he was just the sweetest, most engaging dude. And all he did was drive around California with a cameraman and just go to different California landmarks. He'd be at Yosemite or he'd go to wine country, or then he would just go to like roadside attractions or like someone would tell him like the donuts downtown are great. Oh, well, I'm going to go down there and see some of the donuts. Now, just where you make the donuts? I thought this guy's got <laughs> the greatest job in the world. He did a whole series uh, of these parks. And when my kids were little, we used to um, tune in for The Simpsons every uh-huh. night uh, on, on Channel 11. And then during the commercials, we would flip over to Channel to KCET 28 and see wherever Huel was doing. And we'd watch him for two or three minutes until the cartoon came back. Well, for those for those listeners who don't live in California, I think I have to point out that California, not so much today, but back in the day, California had some of the greatest public access television because they would let anybody do it. And it was all people who wanted to be famous and had the weirdest ideas to get there. <laughs> like, I remember, I, I can't remember the guy's name now, but I remember back in the late 90s, I used to watch regularly a public access show that was nothing more than this random dude who had no connection to the industry whatsoever, just interviewing porn stars. Yes. He, that's all he wanted to do because it was an excuse for him to meet hot women and talk to them. And apparently he needed a camera. And it was just like, it was the most <laughs> awkward, weird, yet somehow engaging television to watch because the conversation was always completely normal. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he was doing anything crazy. It was literally just him sitting like at a desk next to a couch talking to a woman. <laughs> I think the camera was the, was the lure. I think that's what, what he was using to get the women to the couch. I, I there was don't no know way was without crazy a camera, or brilliant or a mix of two. Yeah, he was both. <laughs> both. I remember that show. I forget his name. I can't remember that guy's name, but yeah, that used to be popular. Like yeah, and that a, was a lot of people around here would watch that show just to see what he was going to come up with next. Well, who's the, who's the dude that was in New York too? There was a, there was a similar guy in New York. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, Sarah Silverman used to do a bit about Yep. Yep. I can't remember that guy's name, but yeah, yeah, that guy too. Yeah. So yeah, those, oh, those guys just sort of you know cruising along. Now m- moving towards uh, moving towards VO, I know that sure. that kind of came about because you were working starting out with like like uh, Klasky Supo with uh, sure. some of their different projects and stuff. How did you get into that? What was the the path there? Well, I was a I was a ra- I've always been I still am a radio guy. Um, mm-hmm. I love the radio. The radio is my companion. Um, the popularity of podcasts now is just a gift to those of mm-hmm. us who just love to listen to people talk. Um, so, I mean, I was that kid too. I mean, part of what I did every day after school was go home and pretend I was a DJ on 
93KHJ, which was the big pop, you know, 930 on the AM dial was the big pop music station. So I'd get my stack of 45s and my little record player, and I'd run a, a microphone up over the table lamp, and I would pretend that I was a DJ on the radio. Uh, and so I kind of came up with a desire to be on the radio. Uh, and in high school, I was lucky enough that my um, high school had a radio station on campus. Oh, wow. So we'd flip the switches and it would broadcast live through speakers, you know, passing periods and lunch hour and before school and after school. Uh, and then otherwise, it was just a low wattage station that you could kind of pick up in the parking lot. But well, if you got everyone too much, within the 50 foot radius. Yeah, exactly. If you got too much <laughs> further outside the parking lot, you lost it pretty quickly. But we still had guys that were programmed to be at the station all do, do during the school day. So that that was fun. And that's sort of where I cut my teeth. Uh, um, and then a buddy of mine's mom was dating a dude who worked at the local radio station, KROY mm -hmm. in Sacramento, which is now the Eagle. And I just called him up and started begging him for a job. And he tried to brush me off. And I just wouldn't stop until he finally was like, all right, just get down here. I'm like, I'm on my way. And uh, he <laughs> set me down at a desk with a phone book and a telephone and he said, all right, make some phone calls. I want you to call people and ask them what radio stations they listen to, what kind of music they like. And it was just a bullshit job that this dude gave me to you know, <laughs> satisfy the woman he was uh, with at the time. And I went right to the program director and was like, hi, I'm Keith Farley. I work at KROI, a little radio station at Rio Americano High School. Uh, and if anything opens up on the air, I hope you'll consider me. Here's my air check tape. And about three months later... Uh, a, a spot two to 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings uh, opened up. And that was my first DJ job at the top 40 station in Sacramento. Wow. Um, I went in at 2 a.m. and did um, DJed from about 2 to about 2.40. And then we played public affairs programming all night long and I had to try to stay awake through all that. <laughs> and then at 6.30 to 8 o'clock, I got to uh, DJ while everybody was getting up and heading off to church. Uh, so it was great. It was great, great fun. And that was my senior year in high school. Um, and then I I was at afternoon drive at a small radio station in, in Davis, California, um, where I was hired and fired for the same reason. It was a contemporary Christian radio station. So it was Christian rock. And so I brought them my air check tape and they were like, we love you. And we really love you because you don't sound Christian. And I was like, what? Like, okay. no, you sound like a rock, you sound like a rock DJ. And the music's gonna do the thing. We just wanna we want it to sound like a rock station. And the musical is the message. I was like, great. So six months of that goes by, and that was six days a week, two to eight PM. And uh meanwhile, the dude who was the morning drive guy, who was sort of a fundamentalist right-wingy type, he was promoted to program director and got me in his sights. Uh, and he, one night I pulled into the station parking lot and I noticed his car was there and he was waiting for me. I was like, Hey, what's going on, Randy? He said, well, Keith, we just, um, hate to tell you, but we got to let you go. I mean, you just don't sound Christian. <laughs> and so that was my foray into uh, contemporary Christian rock. And I sort of left radio behind at that point, mm -hmm. but I was a big fan of the, um, big fan of old time radio. Uh, love the Orson Welles uh, stuff. I love suspense, uh, that old radio show, some of the comedies. And so I was big into voiceover from that perspective. And in 1994, I'd married my wife and she had been working at Klasky Chupo as a PA on a show called Duckman. And uh, Duckman was on hiatus. And during the hiatus, she went over to um, work with John Chris Felusi on Ren and Stimpy. Mm-hmm. And so when her job came back up, she was very happy at Spumco. And she said, why don't you take the take the gig? I said, you know, why would I do that? Why would I want to be tied down with a nine to five job? I'm an actor who sometimes has to wait tables. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was my, she said, you know, Keith, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want, to, I want to write. I want to direct. I want to act. She goes, guess what? There's writers in that building over there. Why don't you go meet them? There's directors within those walls. You should get to know those people. And guess what, Keith? Actors come in and out of there every single day. And she was right. So I went in and worked my way up the production ladder at Klasky Chupo. Started as a mm -hmm. PA, became a coordinator, became a manager, uh, associate producer, um, but was stressed out. It really, as I got more and more responsibility, I started to get more and more nervous, more mm -hmm. and more anxiety, was having chest pain. And 
it's because I'm a creative. Like budgets and schedules are something that I can do, but not easily. Yeah. So a couple of things were happening at the tail end of 96 and into 97. My buddy Brian Fleming and I did a movie together that he wrote and directed and I was in. And it didn't get into Sundance and didn't get into Slam Dance, but it got it. We were sitting outside the Actors Gang Theater where I've been a member for 30 years. I said, you know what we should do? We should start our own film festival in Park City, Utah and call it Slum Dance. <laughs> and it'll just be filmmakers begging for money to you know, get their sound mix. And Brian got real quiet and he goes, you know, we have to do this. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, you know what else we should have is a bunch of bums pushing shopping carts with VHS tapes. And people could take them into tents that would have like a VCR and a TV in them. And they could watch them in the tent in the slum. And he was like, I'm serious, Keith. We need to go to Park City. So we jumped on a plane the next week. And this was the middle of December. And by January 20th, we had a film festival called Slum Dance in the basement of the Mrs. Fields Cookie Factory, right next door to the Egyptian Theater on Main Street in Park City, Utah. Wow. And it was bonkers. Fly by the seat of your pants craziness. Our editor for our film was a DJ, so we had him there. Um, IndieWire fell in love with us almost immediately and started bringing beer over. We, we took nothing but Pabst Blue Ribbon because uh, it's the slum after all. We had a soup kitchen where you could get a hot bowl of soup when you came in. Uh, a couple of nuns there serving soup. <laughs> and it just was a great thing. And the Independent Film Channel, IFC, uh, John Pearson, who's an indie film guru, um, was starting a show on IFC called Split Screen, uh, which you can now see on Criterion. And so he recruited Brian and I to produce segments for his show. Uh, and Brian and I had a great time doing that. And the other thing that happened was we started writing a show called Bat Boy the Musical, and we needed to get the show written so it could open on Halloween in 1997. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, listen, a couple of things are happening right now. It's getting kind of exciting. Um, this IFC thing has come and we've got to write this Bat Boy show. I wonder if I could have a few weeks off to sort of focus on this. Now, I may be back We'll just sort of check in in maybe like a month or two. But I think I really need to just focus on this full time. And she goes, you know, Keith, we've been we've been thinking about you. Um, the new creative director for the studio feels like he can talk to everybody on staff, but doesn't really know how to communicate with actors. But he's had his eye on you and he thinks you might be good at that. Would you be interested in taking over voice directing on Rugrats? You'll wow. work a couple of days a week. You'll make about what you're making now. And that'll give you free time to work on all these projects, other projects that you have going on. And I said, sure. Um, and then found myself at a mixing console. And the other side of the glass is E.G. Daly and Kath Susi and um, Tara Strong and uh, Chris Cavanaugh, God rest her soul. Uh, and then Jack Riley, Melanie Chartoff, Tress McNeil, all the greats that were on that show. And I was green. I was the new kid on the block and uh, it was, a, it was a, you know, trial by fire. Yeah. Uh, but I learned, I learned how to communicate uh, with these people. And that really just sort of started my career. Rugrats led to Rugrats video games, which led me to meeting a lot of the people that I work with to this day. Yeah. You've done a ton of projects since then. I mean, you've been a voice director on adventure time and all sorts of different things. I mean, you even did a couple episodes of one of my favorites, uh, uh, the marvelous misadventures of flapjack, which was a phenomenal show. I mean, uh, yeah, you've got quite the resume as a voice director, as uh, not just as a voice actor, which is, I mean, that's really saying something that you've been able to be so successful in both sides of the glass. Yeah. It's been, you know, and again, it's just sort of that same thing that I just sort of, I join up. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you bet. I just, I try to say yes as much as possible. Um, yeah. And that's what I learned from Anne, my wife, who was like, say yes, this is an opportunity for you. Say yes to this PA job that really handed me my career. And the interesting thing too, when I was PA or coordinator, you'd get these cassettes that said like um, Duckman season, you know, uh, episode 201 mm -hmm. radio show. And that's when I made the connection between, oh, this is a way to use my voice and do drama at the same time. It's not radio. It's not commercials. It's not promo. It's actual acting. 
which is what yeah. I came to UCLA to study. And it's a way to be an actor with your voice, which has always been um, something that I've, that I've loved to do. Mm-hmm. So it married both. It was like I'd been on stage and I'd been in a couple of TV shows and a couple of feature films. But really, my love was always radio theater. And radio theater is, before they put the images to a cartoon, it's a radio show. It's a great way to look at it. That, uh, yeah, it's it, much like animation with radio. It was all about projecting everything in the story just through the voice. Right. You know, the emotion as well as, you know, the, the setting the scene. That's That's great. Now, in your work as a voice director, I do have to ask, because, you know, this is your chance to put somebody on blast. Uh, <laughs> who would you say is the funniest voice actor that you've ever worked with? Oh, man. I can't. I don't think there's just one. I remember the first person who I think made me fall out of my chair uh, was Greg Griffin. She was on uh, As Told by Ginger, mm-hmm. and she had a the, – the character she played, I forget his name, had a pet monkey – and she would just do these riffs talking to the monkey that would just absolutely just put me out of my chair. She's she's one of the first where I couldn't speak. I was laughing so hard. Uh, Nolan North is another one. Uh, Nolan is one of the funniest men on the planet. And he would do this these bits. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything more than that in the booth about Dyson vacuums that would just absolutely, again, doubled over pain shooting through the back of my neck and my face because I was laughing so hard. Just because Um, the show is for kids doesn't mean the session is. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Nolan's great. Nolan's really funny. Uh, Nolan's a very funny guy. Yeah. Really, really sharp dude. Uh, So those are two. Um, Chris Cavanaugh, God bless her, was was a wild genius. She was someone who could take a line and, you know, I'd get the scripts the night before and I'd read them over and uh, and you get you get in, you hear them in your head, right? And then you go in and you, it's, it's coming together the way you hear it in your head. And then Chucky shows up, and Chris had a way of playing a line, of turning a line a certain way, that was so much better than what I'd heard, and yet something I would never imagine Chucky would say, or the way that he would say it. Yeah, and she was a just a genius. And you see that with Dexter's laboratory too, the way she can shape a line, the way she can use it was always astonishing to me. And Jack Riley. Um, and I got to be pretty good friends, uh, through that show. Um, he loved me cause they kept trying to make Stu really antic. Mm-hmm. Like they wanted him to be like, oh, I'm about to lose my mind. Yeah. And that is just not Jack Riley. Yeah. So I sort of, you know, um, I pushed back a little bit on that. I was like, you know, Jack's great strength is his deadpan humor, you know, Mr. Carlin on the Bob Newhart show. Um, and I always was sort of pushing him in, and allowing him to do what he did best. Uh, and he was really appreciative for that. And we became pretty tight after that. He was also really funny. Yeah, those are great talents. I mean, you're, you're naming some heavy hitters there, certainly. And having worked with you know, a great comedic talents like that. What would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that actors make when they're approaching a comedic role? You know, what, what do you, what mistakes do you see actors making that those greats might not? Wow. That is a great question. I don't know if I ever thought about that before. Um, give me a minute. I'll get back to you. Um, <laughs> well, luckily we have editing, so I can just take out all the dead air. That's right. <laughs> I'll make you sound so intelligent. It came right off the top oh, of your head. Thank God for you. And, and nonlinear editing. Um, I don't know. Um, there's something about comedy. It's like David Mamet says that like there are people who, who can do it and people that can't mm-hmm. um, about actors. He says that about actors. Um, and it's sort of like it's, it's innate. Um, but I think the thing about comedians is there's a lack of fear Yeah, that comes and maybe Maybe that's not even true. Maybe the fear drives them. I don't know what it is, but there's a sense of, and this is a conversation I have when we start talking about um, kind of the, where the culture is at today. And some mm-hmm. comedians are sort of bristling at where the culture is going. You know, John mm-hmm. Cleese and Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld are all sort of pushing back against like, well, I'm not free to say whatever it is that I want to say. Yeah. And I have this conversation a lot where it's like, you know, we have to think about the way we're talking. We have to, because it's it's part of the way that we treat people 
is the way we speak. Um, and yet comedy is about subverting your expectations. Yeah. That you're going to go down the path here and then we're going to take a left and shock you. Or if you're talking about like a, a Richard Pryor, or we're going to surprise you in some way. It's about understanding that that's what comedy is about. So the people who really get comedy understand two things, I think. They're sort of fearless in throwing themselves into it, and they're not afraid to look foolish. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that they really understand the, the structure of comedy. And whether that's just innate, whether it's just something that you're born with. I know a lot of people who are just naturally funny. Sure, sure. Or whether you, you know, you hone your craft and yeah. whether that's doing it in front of an audience and being unafraid to bomb improv. I remember working with a, a an actor from Final Fantasy. We had both been on a, we were on a Dino. Dino uh, Andrade? Yes. Dino yeah, Andrade. yeah, Dino's uh, improv shows, yeah. Dino's improv shows. And yeah. we did one at Dragon Con and this guy had never done an improv show before in his life. And so we're in the car on the way to the show and he confesses this to me. And I said, okay, well, here's, here's the deal. Dino, I, we talked to Dino at breakfast. I was like, Dino has got these games that we're going to play that are designed to produce comedy. So your job is to follow the rules and then don't be attached to whether or not what you do gets a laugh. Sometimes it will, and you can't attach to that because there's going to be another thing. Just stay in the moment and just ride the wave. And don't worry about whether you're being funny or not. Let the structure of these games do the work for you. So maybe yeah. that's my roundabout way of sort of coming to it, which is following the rules and not being attached, having the, the fearlessness to not need to be funny. Yeah. Well, is that, where true comic genius comes from. I like that you're looking at it from that angle. Um, I, I do think you've got some really good points there. So, uh, comedy structure is something I've taught for years, and it's something I could talk about for hours. I'm a, I'm a big believer in understanding the psychology of comedy and what makes things funny, why they're funny, how they interact with the human brain, why we look at things certain ways. I, I've done a lot of seminars on that. Uh, but the way you're looking at it about being fearless and not being afraid to you know take those risks, it, it does raise a question about one of the things that – a lot of voice actors will get very concerned with is in an audition or in a session, knowing when it's okay to ad lib and break the rules. That's a, it, it's a risk that I know that a lot of voice actors struggle with knowing when is it okay to go off script and kind of th put their own spin on something. When can they free themselves from the shackles? And when is that really going to, you know, bring the production to a halt or cost them the job in an audition? Do you have any, any tips on that about knowing how to identify that? I think that's something that comes from trial and error. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a matter of, of, I mean, and that's part of training too, is, is training in improv. Um, yeah. I've worked with the actors gang for 30 years and all of our workshops and a lot of the shows that have been done at that theater were based, came out of improvisation. Um, we just would get up on stage and get in costumes and makeup and play a character on stage uh, and just come out. If it's not working, you go off stage. You don't get allowed. You're not allowed to come on stage uh, if you're not in an emotional state, happy, sad, angry, or afraid. And so the first thing you do is you step out. And if we don't buy it, we send you back. So it's, again, trial by fire uh, in that regard. But you learn what's funny. And you learn to be free to bomb. Yeah. Because even the, the best comedians uh, still bomb. I mean, you All own your act to a point where it works, but the way you get there is by bombing. Like, well, yeah. that joke's not working. Or let me try a new setup on that joke. Or let me try a different way of phrasing the punchline. Uh, the great Norm MacDonald, who passed away recently. I've been sort of on a little bit of a dive uh, on Norm MacDonald because he loves the Shaggy Dog story. Mm -hmm. He tells these jokes that have these long the fun is in the way he tells these stories. And then the punchlines are really usually pretty silly, you know, and those, those sort of stories I love, I sort of love the way someone can spin a yarn. Um, but he's not afraid to be, to bomb, to be off track. Oh, and some of the, some of the best comics I've, I've ever worked with, uh, get so comfortable with bombing because it is, it is a learning 
tool. I mean, comedy is a minefield. And yes, you can navigate your way successfully through a minefield without hitting any of the mines. But it usually requires having walked the path a bunch of times. You know, you, it's going to take a lot of knowledge to do that. There are comics out there that sort of revel in that risk because it brings a spark to performing. It's it's when they have to do the entire set that they've done 30 times that there's less risk now. I, I remember uh, I did a show years ago with a, a phenomenal comedian, uh, a guy named Christopher Titus. Titus is a, an amazing comic, but we were at a show and uh, we're watching the comic who's up before him. And there's an old lady in the front row and she has fallen asleep. <laughs> and he's he's nudging me. He's like, is that real? Is that real? Is she really asleep? And I'm like, yeah, dude, look, look. She's not responding. That She's asleep. And he's like bouncing on his toes. So he goes <laughs> up there on stage and he starts tearing into this little old lady. And the audience turns on him. They're oh. mad about it, that he's been so abusive to her. And then he launches into his bit and he wins him back. But then he comes back to this old lady and people are like, what's he doing? And I've been around long enough to know what he's doing. He's playing a game with himself to see how far can I drive it to where I lose this entire audience and then pull them back from the brink. And I watched him do this four or five times in his set. And people are just like ready to boo him. And I'm dying laughing because he's so incredibly talented that he knows how to play that game. He also had the greatest line for a woman sleeping in your front row. If you have, if whenever that happens, I guess where <laughs> this, this old lady was, was, <laughs> she was yelling up at him and she's like, you're being mean. And he's like, you're being mean. You're falling asleep in the middle of my show. Do you know how horrible it is? It's like, you're heckling me from another dimension. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. It was so good. <laughs> but yeah, you watch comics who are really, pros at the top of their game and that risk becomes a dance you know the guys who really are willing to push the envelope they take those risks because there's a joy in it it's 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 jumping without the parachute you know yeah. so and that's it's funny i had a i was working with a student here in this here in the the lounge today and he said he met somebody out out and about who told him that disney encourages uh, ad libs mm -hmm. and Nickelodeon hates it. Now I don't See, know I, if this is true or not. I don't. I I can't verify this. This is secondhand information at best. I haven't heard that about the studios, but I have heard that about specific casting directors. Sure, who often work with those studios. So maybe I I don't know. But yeah, I know there's a couple of casting directors where if I see they're, you know, that they're the one that's doing the audition, I'm like, oh, I'm going to stick straight to the script. Don't change a word. <laughs> well, yeah, and you got to know, like, uh, also, like, well, what are you auditioning for? Sure. You know what I mean? There's going to be a lot less opportunities for, you know, for riffing, um, you know, on on a, a Avengers or Transformers. Well, Those even pretty... outside of that, if you look at the different media types, I mean, if you're doing a 30 second commercial spot. You got 30 seconds. Those words, they looked at those words real carefully. <laughs> Sometimes not carefully enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those. This is a 45-second spot. Yeah, yeah. They'll send you three paragraphs, and this is a 30-second spot. How? How? Am I supposed to fold time to make this work? <laughs> I, <laughs> I had a couple. I had one of those a couple weeks ago that was just like, I don't know how you get this to 30 seconds. I don't know. Oh, I love it where it's like, Can't it's, talk it's faster than legalese. And then at the end of the notes, it'll be like, but make it conversational. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like you're talking to one person. <laughs> Don't talk to anybody like that. Now, now speaking of that, having uh, directed a lot of different sessions, as well as having been in so many sessions as a voice actor, what are some of the weirdest directions that you've seen come through? Whether it's you directing another actor or a direction that you've received as an actor. There was a story editor. Um, that I worked with on Rugrats, who was adept at breaking actors. She there was a there was an episode uh, where Angelica was doing a, a a thing where she was pretending to be someone else, mm -hmm. right? So that was the thing. Angelica was trying to get what she wanted by pretending to be someone who was coming over, who was on the other side of the door, or something like that. So she was putting on a second voice in addition to her Angelica voice. Right. And this story editor leaned over, opened the talk back button to 
to Cheryl Chase, who is one of the sweetest, kindest, loveliest people pleasers you've ever met in your life, and says this to her. Um, this character is based on my daughter's preschool teacher, so, um... <laughs> And I turned and looked (laughs) at them and I looked at Cheryl and you could see Cheryl's brain just slowly frying out. She started blinking (laughs) her eyes like she was going into a trance. And then she started going, uh, 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 and we got, we couldn't get a performance out of her for the rest of the day. She was broken, (laughs) broke the actor. She oh, did the wow. same thing, and I forget what she said to him, but she also broke Jeremy Piven, <laughs> who I thought was indestructible. But she did the same thing. She leaned over and was like, so, and he went, same thing. And I turned around, I was like, you may not ever touch this button again. This is my button. You talk to me. You can't, you got to stop breaking these actors. So those, yeah, are, would, those are two of the weirdest where it was would like, throw you. <laughs> the poor actors are just like, I don't know who your preschool teacher is, but I know I have to do what you say. <laughs> oh, so, so sad. Oh, that's great. That is so great. <laughs> yeah. You get a lot of fun stuff like that where you just, I haven't really, I don't think I've ever had anything where I've been in that position where they broke me, where I was like, uh, I, uh, I, uh, but you always get to do fun stuff. I mean, you know, it's not every yeah. gig where you get to, you know, okay, this is where the Gorgon picks you up and swings you around and then flings you, you know, 150 yards down the road and you bounce three times and land on a cactus, you know. <laughs> well, now, in that same vein, uh, what do you think is like the oddest audition you've seen come through? Because some of these breakdowns of some of these parts are pretty crazy. <laughs> I always love the ones where you get like three pages of description and it's like, frag out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to send that in. It's just like, you're going to the page like, okay, yeah. Grew up in, you know, Wichita, Kansas, you know, to an abusive father uh, and a mother who coddled him. And uh, then he worked the fields for 10 years, cut off his left arm in a, in a shearing accident. Uh, and then joined the military you know, because he was bionically reproduced his left arm. And now he's a superhero in the military. Okay, go. Now here's his list of efforts. Ready? (laughs) (laughs) I think, and you know, God bless him because it comes, I think it comes from a, from a good heart. I think it comes from a place of, gee, I really want the actor to have as much information as they possibly can so that they can really bring this character to life. So I have to say that uh, uh, in defense and in understanding, but I tend to just try to be as simple and direct as possible. If I get three pages of, and I'm casting something, yeah, I'll cut, I'll see if I can find the sentence or two that distills it. Well, both it is for the agent and for the actor. It is fair to point out that yeah, they are trying to give you every tool that you might possibly need. So it's fun to laugh about, but the truth is, I'd much rather have one of those come through than the ones I see where it's like, man, thirty to fifty, no accent. Great, you've narrowed it down to ten billion people. Right. <laughs> That's right. Could be anyone. No, I'm not. I'm not. He sounds twenty six and a half. No, he's forty three. You know. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a crazy business. You, I, this is my main thing that I tell actors when I'm coaching is you can't possibly know what they are looking for. Yeah. All you can do is make some choices based on what you see in the script, um, based on your knowledge of script analysis, and then just have fun and play it. And hopefully with emotional states, that same idea that I picked up at the actor's gang, which is if you're happy, you're sad, you're angry, or you're afraid based Mm -hmm. on whether or not you're getting what you want or what you don't want. And if you're in Avengers, you're going to play it one way. And if you're on SpongeBob or Fairly Odd Parents, you're going to play it a much a different way. Yeah. But it's still going to be that same thing. It boils down to happy, sad, angry, afraid. So if you can do that, if you can sort of take it and when you finish your little editing process, whatever that is, 
and you feel like you've done a great job, send that off and move on to the next one. Now, there's, with that in mind, there's two things I want to ask you about in there. First off, how important do you think it is, if at all, uh, for actors to try to not just make the obvious choice? Well, this that goes back to the Chris Kavanaugh. I mean, that she was a genius at getting to the emotional flavor of the scene in a way that was really unique. So she was mm -hmm. doing both. I mean, she found a way to honor the text in a way that was better than you could imagine. So if you can sort of get to that point, mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, that, that can come with take after take after take. You go the Kubrick route, you know, <laughs> you just do 84 takes until you're out of your mind. Um, <laughs> that's one way. Or to just sort of put that in before you start. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm a big believer in spending a little bit of time analyzing what the scene is and what it wants to be about and then putting that away and then playing. Yeah. Because the choices that you make as a thinking person um, are already in there. So yeah, you want to be as far out of your head as possible when you're in the copy. So that can lead to anything, mm -hmm. you know, if and, you're really free and that's just practice, you know, it just takes, takes time. Just keep doing it. And you mentioned there that, you know, the read is going to vary based on like, you know, whether you're doing this for SpongeBob versus Avengers, um, even more broad than that. How do you feel the reads vary depending on the medium going uh, like, you know, a commercial read versus an animation read versus a video game read? What are some of the big things that will stand out for, for voice actors to pay attention to? Well, in a commercial read, you're selling a product. I mean, that's what, that's what commercials exist for. So there's another whole set of things you need to look at. You got to hear the name of the product. You got to look for those descriptive terms that are going to, you know, that they want to get across to the audience. And I talked to this actor I was working with today on this commercial copy mm -hmm. that the, the thing now is not to be, a, don't be a sales salesy. Don't sound announcery. So I always tell them it's a, it's a, it's an adage that I have about um, when you're in an argument with somebody is don't fight, invite, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you don't tell somebody like, how dare you not buy AT&T dumb, you know? Right. Right. No, you don't do that. You, you say like, Oh my God, it's the fastest service you've ever seen in your life. You know, you're going to love AT&T. We've got great customer service. We've got the fastest service. You'll be able to stream all of your shows and movies. It's the best thing I've ever experienced. You're inviting someone to see how obviously great it is. So, and you got to hear AT&T and you know, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So that's a whole different process than when you're in a scene with somebody um, in a video game or in a um, animated series. And it helps to know the series. It helps to know who created the series, what the tone of the series is going to be. Is mm -hmm. this SpongeBob where everything is absolutely 100% sincere and heartfelt, but it's so invested. I always use the example of Mr. Krabs. You know what he wants money. If he gets it, he will set off fireworks. And if he doesn't, he'll dig himself a grave and bury himself behind the crusty crab. That's how much he loves money. So yeah. how much can you invest with the stakes? In the Avengers, they're, you know, the stakes are always to save the universe from destruction, right? So there's stakes there too, but they play on a different level. So there's right. all kinds of stuff. Um, that goes along with it. Listening to cartoons, knowing what the the, the vocal cadence is and just sort of ingraining that in your head. Um, mm -hmm. I always tell actors to watch and echo, like engage with your content. When you see a character that you're like, aha, I could play that, echo that character, watch a couple episodes and just do every line that they do. Go on YouTube, go on Hulu, go on and pause, repeat, play, pause, repeat. It's a great not, way. Not just mimicking the that. actor, but, but taking on that role. Yeah. Yeah. And just a lot of times there's a, there's a musicality that comes along with, mm -hmm. with, uh, with a Nickelodeon show. There's a musicality that comes along with a Disney show. Um, and you know, I went to the, um, Picasso museum in, in Barcelona, Spain, and I walked into the first room and I was like, holy shit. It was all these portraits that were photorealistic and like, they felt so familiar to me. 
was like, God, I've seen these. I never, I didn't know Picasso did these these portraits. And I went up on the wall, and it said these were from baby Picasso. Would go to the Prado in Madrid, where I'd been the week before, mm-hmm. and he would copy the masters. He would put up an easel. So these were El Greco's that he had copied perfectly, and they were hanging on the wall there. That's where he started by doing perfect replicas of El Greco. Wow. Uh, and then he gets to do everything else that he does in his life and change art forever. Yeah, learn um, the rules before you break them. Yeah. Right. So to be able to understand the way a Disney princess speaks is very handy. To understand how Disney villain speaks is very handy. Then you put your own spin on it. You know what I mean? It's and, yeah. and again, it's not about impressions as much as your expression of that character. And and being able to understand what that character is and how to do that can be really handy. That's great. It's great advice. Uh, so listen, Keith, before I let you go, uh, one thing I like to do with all of my guests here on the show is I do like to play a game with my guests. Hey, I love games. Fun. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear you're up for a game because <laughs> I'm going to try a brand new game with you, one I've Ooh. not done with any of my guests yet. You're the first one. We are going to play a little game called Anime or Florida. <laughs> So here's how this game works. I am going to describe a person to you, and you have to tell me if that is an anime character or an actual person from a Florida news headline. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Let's see how you do. All right. First one. Let's see here. What will we go with? Uh, Let's start with this. A man is revealed as clinically insane when he insists on making phone calls using whatever happens to be at hand. A frog, an ice cream cone, a burning cigarette. Is that an anime character or a person from an actual Florida news headline? That is an anime character. That is an anime character. That's Dopio from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. (laughs) All right. One down. Excellent. Excellent. Let's see here. All right. Pressure's on now. I can feel it. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm settling in. A shady man attempts to assault an unsuspecting woman with a deadly weapon. And his weapon is a flying alligator. Wow. It's a tough one. It is a tough one because, you know, the alligators down in Florida, um, having been to Gatorland, uh, and I can't recommend it enough, um, although the flying alligator aspect makes me think anime. Anime? Where you that is an actual man. He threw the alligator. A man attacked a woman through a Wendy's drive through window by throwing alligators at her. Okay. But the alligators aren't flying. Well, they're flying as he throws them. All right. They're, they're going through the air. I think it counts. Johnny Semantic. <laughs> I can't make it too easy for you. No, no, no. The flying alligator, that was, that was what, because it sounded like something that would totally happen in Florida with the exception of flying alligator. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm all right. I'm all right. All right. One, all right. One, one you on got one. This. You got this. Batten 500. Let's go. After getting tired of waiting too long to see a doctor, a man decides to return home by stealing an ambulance. <laughs> I could see that happening in Florida. <laughs> that is a Florida news story. I was, I was about to say... Or anime. <laughs> going to go fishing with the uh, question mark. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's see. A man attempts to hypnotize his target during a live event and accidentally puts himself to sleep. Wow. I would say that is a great plot for anime. I'm going to say anime on that one. That is Django from One Piece. Yes. Excellent. All right. You're doing good. Right. You're doing good. You got this, man. So you far, this. three for four. That's good. A man gets called out for taking off his shirt before getting into a fight and his pants and every single article of clothing so he can fight nude. <laughs> this actually happened uh, to me while I was in Florida. Oh, see, well, if it actually happened to you while you were in Florida, I feel like your story is going to be better than anything I could have possibly said here. <laughs> so even though you're wrong, oh. I'm going to say you 
because that's actually Gray from a fairy tale, the ice wizard who will remove his clothing before getting into a fight. Ah, nice, nice. All right, let's see. People pay to see that, you know. (laughs) A young hiker suddenly finds himself doing battle with an angry squirrel who attacks him while he attempts to take a nature selfie. Wow. See, that could go either way. I could see that happening. That's what makes it a game. <laughs> in both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that sounds like something, that, a plot point that you would see in an anime. Oh! That is an actual story from a Florida news headline. A guy who got chased off by a, a squirrel that was attacking him all over his body. While he was taking a selfie. While he was taking a selfie at, out in nature. Yep. Ah, damn squirrels. Damn squirrels. Thousands of rebellious citizens attempt to attack a weather giant with rifles in an attempt to save their town. Well, that's, that's got to be anime. No! That is a bunch of people in Florida who thought they could scare off Hurricane Irma <laughs> by shooting it with rifles. Oh, it man. It was an entire event. Where they thought they could scare the hurricane with guns. <laughs> this will work for sure. If you, if if there has ever been a more Florida story in life, I don't know it. <laughs> well, because in Florida, there's nothing that can't be solved with firearms. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the state motto, I think. A man is busted for wearing clown makeup and getting kids to hit him to become sexually aroused. <laughs> oh, dear goodness. I oh, I'm going to be really sad if it's Florida, but I kind of think it is. Oh, thank you. It's goodness. actually Hisoka from Hunter x Hunter, but <laughs> it might have happened in Florida and just hasn't been reported yet. It sounds like a Florida thing, right? You know what? Thank goodness. That's all I have to say. Thank goodness. When a thief discovers that a baby is still strapped in the back of the vehicle he just stole, a sudden streak of conscience forces him to return the baby safely without being caught by the police, and he successfully manages to make his getaway. Hmm. This is another one that has kind of a blurred lines feel to it. Um, I'm going to go out. I'm going to say that's anime. That is an actual story in Florida. A guy stole a car, realized a baby was in the back, managed to sneak to the home where the car was, drop off the baby, and escape the police that were pursuing him. Unbelievable. And amazing. Mm -hmm. And it would also make a great anime. It would make a great anime. That would make a great scene in an anime. Well, I feel like you are winning with a score that I don't know what it is because I lost. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know what it is. I I think I came out under 500, which I'm sad about. But I think you're winning. You know what? I I don't remember getting anything (laughs) wrong. You know what? Tape tell a tale. The key to a good game is that you have fun playing it. (laughs) And I have to say, that's a great game. And I had a ball. Well, I'm glad because you got one question left. Hey, we're going to wrap this up with one more question. All right. Florida or anime. A man is found to have an obsession with creating (laughs) new dish recipes. The scary part is that his recipes often included specific bits of people as ingredients. Once again, Ken, your your curation of this game is astonishing. Because <laughs> it really could, I could see it. I could go either way. I could go either way. So I have to go one way or the other. And I'm going to say anime. I'm so glad you got that one because not only is it anime, that's Dingo from Epic Seven, which is a character that I play. So I'm really happy you got that one. I should have done more Google stocking. I should have Google stocked you a little more thoroughly, Ken Pringle. (laughs) Well, listen, Keith, before I let you go, uh, just a last question or two here. Um, I obviously you've taken a unique route in getting there, but if somebody wanted to start moving into voice directing, do you have any advice for them? How would they go about that? Wow. Um, you know what? It always, for me, it always comes back to advice that Frank Zappa gave to would be composers. He said, if you want to be a composer, write a piece of music, get a group of people to play it in front of another group of people and repeat. And I think that's just, that's kind of what you have to do is find a script that you want to direct, direct some actors in it. 
um, either record it and play it for other people or get them up on stage in front of people. I mean, when I was with the Actors Gang in my early years with the gang in 91, I curated a um, once a month radio show mm-hmm. at Highland Grounds Coffee House, which is right there at Highland and um, Melrose. And uh, it's now Cat in the Fiddle, um, which is ironic because we used to go to Cat in the Fiddle after the shows. So now you don't even have to leave. Um, but that's what I was doing. Um, I just did it and there was no money in it, but it got me talking to actors and directing actors um, and then just keep doing it. Um, and just the more you get to meet people and the more you understand how each individual actor is their own unique approach. You can't have a blanket approach to directing actors because every actor is different. You'll, you, you will be a director. Hmm. So you, you, you do it by doing it. It's really, it's one of those things like, you know, find something you want to direct, direct it and show it off in front of some other people and then do it again and do it again and again and again. Good advice. Good advice. Or, you know, try to get a PA position at a animation studio (laughs) (laughs) and work for three years in production uh, and hope that somebody notices that you have talents (laughs) beyond budgets and schedules. And do you have any advice for uh, voice actors that are just starting to get into the business? Yeah. Uh, I always tell people to think of it as a, like you're going back to school for a master's degree. I think we said Mm -hmm. this at the beginning. Um, Take classes, do your homework and work toward work toward making your thesis, which is your demo. And then hopefully that will open the doors to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then you just get out there and you just keep going again, same sort of thing. And Tom Keegan um, puts it really well. Uh, he says, and I had another acting coach who, who said something similar, which is that you are a practitioner of the craft of acting. Uh, and the acting coach had said, like a medical practice, like a doctor practices medicine by doing medicine every day. They're constantly sharpening their skill set. They're constantly learning new techniques. They're constantly growing. The practice is not just something you do in your private time at home, but it's your practice as a practitioner mm-hmm. of of voice acting. So you've got to give it the time that it that it needs. Um, it's not something that's just a side hustle mm-hmm. that's going to bring you a little bit of extra extra dough on the side. Uh, it's its own um, it's its own um, practice. It's its own. It has its own set of skills that you have to learn mm-hmm. um, in order to do it well. So focus on it. I Make feel like that's practice. good advice, but I do feel like you missed something. Um, this was a perfect opportunity to pimp out VO Lounge. Uh, <laughs> I set you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could reach out. Um, if you go to keithfarley.com, and that's K-E-Y-T-H-E, F as in Frank, A-R-L-E-Y, uh, keithfarley.com, um, there's a button on that page that'll put you in touch with me if you want to do coaching, uh, if you want to get on my mailing list. Um, which will let you know once this pandemic finally wraps up, which I hope will be in the next six months or so uh, when I can start doing in-person group classes again. But mm-hmm. I am available right now for um, for privates um, and happy to do it. I really love working with actors. You can also find me on skillshub.life, uh, which is a group that Jennifer Hale runs. Uh, a whole bunch of coaches on there and I'm on that site as well. Oh, great. Great. Can I also plug my podcast? Please. I dropped a new episode of my podcast, Live from the Lounge with Keith Farley. Uh, dropped that yesterday. It's our uh, Thanksgiving episode. Um, There's a great um, sketch written by Matt and Carol Almos on there about a Friendsgiving that goes completely haywire. Mm-hmm. Um, some great music, some good conversations. I talk with Ethan Dettenmeyer of Combat Radio uh, about his... Um, Combat Radio uh, Christmas for Social Services event that he runs every year. Mm-hmm. He's a really funny and sweet guy. Uh, and then I talk a little bit about giving thanks and going home and all that stuff that goes along with the season. It's a variety show. And you can find it on all of your podcast platforms. Uh, mm-hmm. If you search my name, once again, K-E-Y-T-H-E-F-A-R-L-E-Y, it's the, about the only thing that pops up. Uh, or you can go to livefromthelounge.podcast.com and find it there. Well, add it to the... Uh add it to the listings and uh, yeah, hopefully people get that on there. And before I let you go, the last question that uh, your fans would insist that I ask you, what is the sexiest option to romance Thane in Mass Effect? 
the sexiest option. God, that's a, you know, as, <laughs> you know what, you know, it really is up to you. The, 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 the breadth of desires. I mean, <laughs> I was introduced yesterday on an N7 panel <laughs> as being <laughs> the, the character that probably has the most porn fan fiction. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, it's like I, I've talked to people before that they get all like weird about that. And I think it's a compliment. Honestly, I really do. Like I had a fan who was embarrassed to tell me that he'd written a uh, uh, slash fiction, you know, gay fan fiction about a character that I'd done. Sure. And, you know, I'm straight. But to me, I was like, that's incredibly flattering. You got that out of what I did. That's awesome. So, and yes, I mean, you look up Thane on Google and it's pretty much just all, <laughs> what are the different ways that I can get this guy to sleep with me? <laughs> yeah. There is some interesting artwork as well. <laughs> well, don't give us URLs for that. Let's, let's leave a little mystery to the Google search engine there. Right. Maybe put your safe search on before you start uh, down that path or not. Once again, it's, it's, what turns you on? What gets you excited? And, you know, I can't control that. Well, listen, Keith, it. this has been a blast. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I really appreciate 100% it. 100% my pleasure, Ken. You are, a, I'm a big fan of yours, and thank you for everything you do for the community. Um, you, are a, you are a shining light uh, in the voiceover community, and I'm, I'm really grateful to you um, for giving me a chance to uh, get up at flappers and, and play around a little bit. And, uh, I, I still wish I had video of you doing limericks with the ukulele. That was so great. <laughs> that was so much fun. Good times. <laughs> we'll get you out to do it again, but until then I'm going to wrap up here with the same words. I end every podcast with it's the same words. My mom would tell me every Saturday morning when the cartoons were done, the show's over, go outside and play. <laughs>